Film Drive is made possible by Audible, the world's largest selection of audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for a free 30-day trial and an audiobook of your choice, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on March 11th, 2015. My name is Zach. And I'm Gaddy. This is episode number 90, where we are discussing Vincent Gallo's 1998 directorial debut, Buffalo 66, starring Vincent Gallo, Christina Ricci, Ben Gazzara, and Angelica Houston. Gary, would you please read the plot synopsis? Having just served five years in prison for a crime he did not commit, Billy Brown kidnaps a young tap dancer named Leila forces her to pretend to be his wife. However, it quickly becomes clear that Leila has allowed herself to be kidnapped and is romantically attracted to Billy from the start. However, Billy is blinded by his thirst for revenge while battling his own demons, loneliness and depression. So previously, uh, in an email, you mentioned that you've watched this film somewhere between 30 and 40 times. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily all that surprising to me because I think... This could very much be that kind of 90s indie movie for people who maybe didn't necessarily respond to like Clerks or Pulp Fiction or something like that. Mm. Like, I think this has that, the potential for that kind of, uh, the equivalent of that sort of cult following. To start, I've, what is it about this movie that encourages so many rewatches for you? I think I originally saw it around 2000, 2001. Uh, and for a long time I did consider it my favourite film. Kinda, I feel like I've outgrown it a little bit as I've got older, but yeah, I think it's a film that kind of ticks all the boxes for me. I identify with Billy, uh, so like on a narrative level, I respond to the character, and also like technically in terms of form, I like how it plays with form. Uh, that's something I always look for, and it's got kind of similarities to it's got a bit of Antonioni in there, a bit of Godard, um, sort of like kind of mixing long takes and jump cuts. Uh, and I love the look of the film, and I love Gal as an actor. Ricci's great in it. Um, a lot of good things in there for me. Do you think you're mentioning all these formal inspirations? Do you think he's consciously? drawing upon those people um i don't think so i think i think ozu who you didn't mention but i do think ozu is probably somebody that because i've heard him speak of that of ozu in the past that that's probably somebody he's drawing inspiration from but i don't know i mean obviously the text at the beginning is very godardian Mm. I'm just curious, I guess, how much you think, how consciously you think he is aware of maybe what he's referencing or if it's sort of incidental. Yeah, um, also is the most explicit one because there's the, the, some of the shots, the cuts are very obvious and um, 
the fact that there's the, the number plate of the car is Ozu as well. But as far as the other influences go, Gallo in sort of interviews, he always kind of rejects that. He always kind of likes to put forward the point that he's doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. And you could say certain seeds are influenced by Lynch, but he would say that's kind of a ridiculous comparison that's not really necessary in any basis. Uh, Which I actually agree with in yeah, his sure. form. I, I mean, where that comes from is, you know, obviously from the the uh, Fool's Rush In sequence yeah, and the bowling yeah. alley tap dance. But to me, like, I disagree with people who compare that or state that as sort of Lynchian because when you think of, for instance, in Blue Velvet, when Ben performs that number, like, Ben's home is designed very much like a stage. Like, when Lynch breaks into those moments, it is, like, he's already established, like, a theatrical cal- a theatricality to those environments. Like, when Ben brings up the work light, like, Ben is a character that is already, like, pushed to an extreme, just, like, in his demeanor and his appearance. And that room, like, there's that giant doll on the couch, and there's these, you know, f- fat men and women who look like they just came off of, like, a 50 sitcom set or something. To me, everything about, like, the spaces where those kinds of things happen in Lynch films, there's an artificiality there, and they're kind of designed, like, it's two contrasts coming together. Even when I think about, like, the Twin Peaks musical numbers inside the bar, it's just weird that this biker bar exists, and then you have Julie uh, Cruz performing in a biker bar. To me, like the thing that's different about when he brings in these more impressionistic moments in in this film, I find them I do find them jarring because it's this thea- theatricality that suddenly interrupts this very sort of natural realism that exists okay, within yeah. that space. You know, the bowling alley isn't like it isn't a contrast to like Billy and Layla's characters. Like to me, they feel like they would be people that would inhabit that space to begin with. I mean, what I will say just in regards to my relationship with the movie, I had seen it probably three or four times previous to this, and uh, but it had been several years since I had seen it, and I also quite like the movie, and um, what I think is really interesting about it is that it is a film that takes iconography and tropes that we associate with a certain genre and in this case it's the romantic comedy and it it recontextualizes those those markers into visuals that we don't associate with comedies i mean like i could see this if this movie had been produced by like a big studio it would resemble in my mind the adam sandler comedies of that period like when i think of (laughs) billy madison or happy gilmore you could probably even draw some links to like punch drunk love but it's that man-child sort of comedy. Like I do see yeah. Billy Brown as a sort of man-child, and Adam Sandler. When you think of those comedies, like he is a very, like violent, expressive character as well. I mean, even when you think of like the, the two parents, like those are those are characters that I could easily see, in a sort of like a Will Ferrell movie. It's just how. Where he how he places them in in the, in what context he does is what separates it, and it's like he subverts he takes all these expectations of comedy that we have, and then he kind of subverts them into this 
very like nihilistic absurdism that I find is like very violent. Like to, to me, this movie feels very like angsty and violent and it takes a template and it just doesn't follow any rules. It's like even down to just the musical selections, it's like so contrary to not just comedies, but just like indie movies of that period, the type of music that he's using. Yeah. So, and then, and then it's also just, um, it's one of those few films that when you watch it, it exudes a point of view that feels as though it could have only been expressed by the filmmaker who made it because separating the potential autobiographical elements to the story, whatever those are, aren't, it just feels so much of his DNA and also of Buffalo's DNA. Those things just feel very essential to this film's existence. And I, I respond to movies that feel like the person that made them had to make them. So I guess with you said with Billy, you identify with that character. I would say when I, when I read people who respond negatively to the film, the principal issue they seem to bring up is how despicable they find him. Well, it's always a tough one because I think it's hard to tell what exactly is meant to be part of the narrative and what is sort of Gal's intention with the character because he does start off as the sort of start of the film is very despicable and then I think the intention is that he kind of becomes a good guy to the end, towards the end, but there's certain things that I can't necessarily uh, let him off. I'd like sort of homophobia at the start. One thing I like want to tread lightly on is judging the film based off of the Gallo persona because right. that's like something that seems impossible for people to do. Sure. When I first saw this film, and there is that scene in the dance hall bathroom, it did feel like somebody's kind of like stroking his own ego, you know, and then expressing a belief that he has or something. But then when I think about the movie more, I I wonder, like, is that scene about, is that scene meant to work as a companion to the fact that he just got out of prison and when he was in prison, he probably was not the person in that situation who had the control. And that scene is about him reclaiming that control, you know, in that sort of surrounding. Possibly. I guess I'm trying to find a way to justify now his berating of him and, you know, the slang that he uses. I'm not going to defend that, but I feel like the response yeah. that he's making, there is at least some kind of like, there's something warranted about it within the narrative. Yeah, possibly the prison thing is a good point, but it's also troublesome because Gallo himself in real life is likes to throw kind of homophobic slurs about as well. So yeah, it's it's tough. But uh, um, so can I ask though? Do you how much do you think of what he says is sincere? Gallo yeah. himself. Well, yeah, that's the other conundrum about Gallo. Um, you never know what he's doing for effect, what he's doing for kind of self promotion or just to kind of make himself chuckle. Right. He, he is a kind of a, a, a guy that's hard to, to crack. So you never know, really, do. To me, that I, I try not to think about those things because it's just that's, that's him, the person. and Yeah. You know. Personality-wise, in the character of Billy, I guess I kind of 
I was always that guy who's a bit kind of had that self-loathing, kind of awkward around other people. Um, like that scene where in the diner where Wendy Balsam comes in and mm. he, he basically has to leave. That's kind of something that I might do. I definitely identified with the character, definitely even more so as a younger person. Um, I think the more I've got old, a little older, and I do the certain parts of the character that are a little bit kind of whiny that I feel now it's a little bit like, mm, it's the sort of that kind of teenage angst thing about hating the world as well as kind of looking, overlooking your own flaws and kind of that anger outwards whereas possibly should be looking in. Mm-hmm. He basically hates women because of he get rejected by one girl when he was at school. The one thing I'll say about that is we don't really know how old he is. True. And yeah. so we don't know how much life experience he had beyond, say, high, how long he was out of high school and then in prison. You know, mm. you never... Yeah. See, the thing to me is I feel like with the film opening of that image of of him as a child at age seven, it almost, his behavior almost seems like he's never, like that was the, that was like his maturity stopping point. Like he has not emotionally grown beyond that age. Right. Yeah. The, one of the great things about the movie to me is just the, his dialogue and the things that he says as just being so childlike, calling it a shifter car or like there's the, that's the, when he's explaining to Christina Ricci in, in the car, he says, like, you know, if you make me look bad, I'll never talk to you again. Yeah. But if you do a good job, you can be my best friend, the best friend I've ever had. And it's just such a yeah. a bizarre thing to say. And and to me, like, his dialogue is also kind of enforces maybe why she's, like, sticking around. Like, I kind of believe that maybe she recognizes sort of the innocence in him in some ways, and she wants to try to, like, help him through this. Yeah. But there's even just, like, the repetition, like, he everything he says he has to say two and three times. Yeah, and that's it, one of the things I love about the film as well. It's, like, his dialogue, the way it's delivered is great. He loves that repetition. It's It's communicating that feeling that he feels this need to repeat himself because he feels like no one is ever listening to him. Because mm. that's, like, the world he grew up in as a kid. Right, yeah. I can understand why people are so hostile towards the character, but I also feel like there's... There, there is a... I feel empathy for him. I don't think the movie tries to make it easy. I don't, you know, I don't know that you're supposed to take pity on Billy. But I, I kind of feel like it tries to do its best to justify why he's acting like like a snotty little boy the whole time. Yeah. And then, you know, the ending of the movie where he kind of, like, comes out the other side, like, I feel like one of the interesting things about it is it is a movie that ends, I think, on a happy note. Mm-hmm. And rarely in movies like this do you feel like that was earned. To me, like, his transformation is earned. Like it took the entire movie to get him to this point where he can just like, like, to me like that donut shop scene is sort of a perfect distillation of everything that that character wants. Like he just wants 
somebody to love him for for what he is except almost like accepting himself and I like the that shot in the donut shop with the cookies is just one of my favorite scenes yeah. in any movie oh, I've yeah. ever seen. Yeah. It's just such it's a sweet sort of moment. It's a it's like the first moment in the entire film where there's some sense of grace actually happening. Everything is so hostile, and that is that character in a completely different makeup. Mm. What you're saying about him earning it, though, I'm not sure that's necessarily. I necessarily feel that way just because it's not really made clear why Richie's character of Leila is so in love with him but then on the other hand then it's not necessarily meant to be that because it's like I think Gallo said it's meant to be like a fairy tale and a fantasy rather than um, strict realism so um, but that kind of gets into more like the gender politics of it Mm -hmm. which uh, I think you can kind of read both ways it's sort of a nuance to it although I wouldn't argue with people saying it's slightly sexist, but um, yeah, nor would I, because I mean, it is. I mean, essentially, it is like a male fantasy where yeah. like this woman is brutalized to the point where she falls in love with her captor. Yeah, and it, and I and I've read some people state that this is like a film that enforces this male fantasy that you can treat women poorly and they'll still be they'll still return affection. Yeah, I don't know if you can. It's that it's a point you can't really argue with. But I think any kind of romantic fantasy, whether it be from a male or a female, is is always going to be like that, and it's not sort of sexist in a way because you're assuming that the person that you can idolize will give you sort of undying affection and kind of overlook your own flaws. The one thing I would argue, though, with her character is when people say that she isn't given any agency. Um, I actually think the movie's very generous, does give her moments where she completely controls the rhythm of the movie and excludes Billy out of it completely. I mean, when you think about the parents' home, we know nothing about this woman. She walks into that parents' home and she just takes control of that entire situation. She just immediately slips into that character and she, she sells it. And it's the same thing with the tap dance sequence. That's a moment where we do not, it does not depict his observation of it. You know, like he's not a part of that action at all. That is completely yeah. dedicated to her. And also I think it's quite clear from the start that Billy can't control Leila at all. There's a scene earlier where they're first in the car and Billy's like, okay, we're going to switch places. One, two, three. And she just sits there. Yeah. <laughs> and then as the film goes on, it's kind of clear that she has the ability to manipulate him pretty easily when the scene is going to take the bath and she, he won't let her in and then she eventually works her way in and then kind of the ultimate scene where before Billy's going to leave to go to the strip bar she uses his own kind of weakness against him to make sure that he'll come back because mm-hmm. he, he can't tell her the truth that he's planning to kill himself so um, she kind of gets her own kind of goal I also love in the the bathroom sequence that we don't. There's just a cut, and then she's just in the bathtub. Like right, yeah, we don't yeah. get that whole push and pull bit. It just happens. Mm. The only thing about saying that she can manipulate him as her ultimate goal is the same as his. So it kind of feeds back into that sexist thing. But mm. 
yeah, so there's some nuance to it, but um, it's a kind of something I think that the film is always going to be up against. But mm-hmm. What do you think of the parents? Well, I'm inclined to say that possibly the performances are a little too broad, but um, it's hard to know if Gallo got what he was intended to do. I mean, I'm not sure if he intended it to be quite as... the, the comedy elements to be quite as broad or not, but... Um, Gazar is great, although I know there was kind of trouble on set, like, they didn't like each other. I think uh, Gallo has been intentionally a bit of a dick to try and coax the performance out of Gazara. Yeah, I read that as which well. Which he kind of resented, which I can understand, because Gazara's obviously been around for so long at that point. No, I mean, the sort of characters, it's pretty bizarre. Um, it, and it does kind of justify... Billy's character. I I just think the way that that whole sequence is staged is so masterful. I mean, I'll I'll agree that I think Gazara is great. I do think Houston pushes it a step too far to where it it does in moments start to feel like it's being, you can sense that she's performing. Mm. And I know from what I've read that he had, of all the, the cast, he he and her were the ones that butted heads the right. most. Like she, he claimed she ended up costing like another $50,000 in the, on the budget just from, for being temperamental and refusing right. to shoot on Easter Sunday. And okay. she had like, she had to have that wig and the wig was $20,000 or something like right. that. And, but just, I find that scene so disorienting because he places that the camera at this sort of slightly, lower angle than the eye sees and when i was watching it this time i was noticing that the table to me appears unusually tall for a kitchen table okay like when you look at that table it's almost parallel if not above every character's chest i mean it's it's also probably important that like all the body language everyone is slouched in some shape or another like vincent gallo is sort of slap he's sort of like hiding in his own skin gazaro's like basically laying on the table and then <laughs> angelica houston is always sort of leaning forward and the only person that's kind of like sitting in some kind of confidence confident position is christina ricci but it's also interesting because he every shot at that table it only ever allows three characters in the frame yeah I think there's one reverse from Angelica Houston's chair when she's in the kitchen where you do get all four. But otherwise, there's always a perspective absent from those dialogues. And that's the one thing, like, where I would say the Ozu thing starts to become a little questionable is because, yes, there's sort of these head-on angles, but the Ozu films I've seen, he doesn't leave, like, any headroom. Whereas, like, Gallo's compositions are sort of very elongated, very wide. You get the ceiling in the frame. Like everybody's almost in the lower third. And then the upper two thirds are sort of like this negative space. And then the equal plane for every character is is the table. Yeah. The one thing he does too, though, that is very Ozu-like is he does, and he does this repeatedly throughout the movie, is the sort of using all 360 degrees yeah, definitely, yeah. of the space. And that and that to me is a great thing, just because he 
he extends spaces in that way. Like there's that example when he's in the car and he finally pees and we get those rotating images. You you know, you show you're getting a complete visualization of that entire environment. Yeah, that's what I kind of like, just the kind of rejection of the traditional Hollywood techniques. I love that scene in the car where Gallo's delivering a monologue and it, the shot is just Richie's face uh-huh. and it doesn't like crosscut or anything. From what I read, she did have dialogue, but he just right, okay. cut it all out in post, right. which I like how it is, but I'm, I'm kind of curious just what her character would have been saying to him in response mm. to what he was telling her. Did you know did you know he wasn't originally supposed to direct the film to begin with? Really no. No, know. he originally uh he went to Monty Hellman, but he he became weary when Hellman dismissed this idea of stylized cinematography. Right. And then what ended up happening was a company offered to finance the film but only if he would direct it him himself. Right. So according to what he says the only reason why he ended up directing the movie was because the movie wouldn't get made if he didn't. And he also claims that he knew if he had the chance to direct a film that it would be unpleasant because he would be evil and everyone would hate him. Right. <laughs> which, which is another thing, too. I know like a lot of all the actors have basically publicly stated how you know, difficult he was to work with mm. and he's you know, retaliated or... Re- but... It's also interesting just to – I think the – you sent me that cinematography article, the the book that Lance Accord had written on a chapter, and he talked about the struggle of having to play that character and then also direct actors and try to come out of that character and how difficult that was for Gallo to have to play such a narcissistic personality and then try to, you know, be a – I guess, an accommodating director on set with the other actors. No, I think it's always a tough one to be a director. And, uh, it says, like, you're, he, he, it's such a kind of his movie and so personal, like, to get your vision on screen and then being the main actor as well. So it's going to be pretty tough. But I don't know. Is it, is it his kind of character as well, though? Does he necessarily have to be that much of a dick or not? So many people have said that about him. I think that's even like Courtney Cox as well, who like worked with him in other movies. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of it is to get the the product in the can or is it his actual personality, but that's kind of not that interest. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, there's other directors uh, who have been accused of similar things, but if if it leads to good work, then is it worth it? Maybe. So maybe I'm more likely to overlook it if it's a, a kind of like The Shining, if it's a greater film. You're saying, like, everyone knows that, like, Kubrick berated Duvall, but nobody seems yeah. to really have a problem with it because yeah. it's a great movie. Or, like, right? um, if something like The Passion of Joan of Arc. I mean, when people discuss that film, the, the kind of abuse of Falconetti is kind of mentioned, but the, the film is so revered that that's not really a point that comes up. But we are... You talk about a Gallo movie, then it's kind of right up there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the other thing is too is there's no there's no way to know you know what the legacy of a film is going to be as you're making it anyway. So I don't know mm-hmm. that that ever really like a, a, abuse. I don't know is ever really justified 
as it's happening. Those are all great movies, but I mean, it's the same thing with which I don't know. People talk about way too much, but the the unsimulated oral sex in the brown bunny. When when I first saw that film, and I knew of all this critical resentment, all these accusatory statements leveled at him, and I saw that, I just was like, I don't get what the big deal is. <laughs> like I don't, <laughs> I don't know why this is so upsetting to people. It's not like Chloe Savini was forced against her will to perform this. Like she agreed to do it. Yes, it is gratuitous, but I guess my question is: Does it did it have to be unsimulated? You know, I don't, I don't know. And I, the only thing that I've ever heard him say was that he was trying to take like pornographic iconography and link it to these themes of guilt, you know, and regret. But I don't know that if I that I have to see like his erect penis in order to connect the dots in that way. No, I think that that oral sex act is quite important in terms of narrative because that it couldn't be a mutual intercourse act because of what happens to Savini's character. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important. It's like only it's him that's receiving the pleasure. Well, I also think like that movie, to me, when I watched these two films, I think ultimately like they're very like simple narratives like i don't i don't know that i even i i kind of see the brown bunny as more of a non-narrative film but they have very simple virtues like they're both films about they're films about lonely people with a lot of like bottled resentment and it's just bud clay and billy brown just have very different ways of expressing those feelings brown bunny like he loves a woman named daisy she is blonde and she shares the name of a flower every woman he comes in contact with is either blonde or shares the name of a flower like it's purposefully banal until the the revelation at the end, which I still like when I, I find far more upsetting than the unsimulated sex imagery. Like I'm for, far more upset by sort of the flashback reenactments. Yeah, I like the Brim Bonnie quite a bit. The only thing that spoils it for me is um, Gallo's performance at that kind of revelation scene where I think he goes way over the top. Oh, with the crying and the... Yeah, yeah, mm. and the kind of whining, and, um, which is unusual because normally I, I like him as an actor mm-hmm. a lot, but um, I think that's just a bit misjudged there. But um, I, I think there's a, bit, a lot to like in The Brown Bunny, although it's not for everyone. I kind of like a lot of that, that kind of minimalist style. I like all the stuff that's just him in the van and it's just the shots out the, the front window. It's more of like a landscape film yeah. than it is like a you know a three act story or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, then there's a whole thing. It can Gallo says the original cut was never intended to be a final cut, right? And his defense, so whether or not we believe that or not, or that he did cut it in reaction and after the reaction reaction that he got. Well, the only thing I know is that the original ending was significantly different. Oh, really? Was it right? I mean, otherwise he cut 26 minutes and most of it was just more driving and seven minutes of it was a black screen right? <laughs> uh, at the end of the film. But from what I, I know what I've read from some critics that did get to see the original version that I don't know what was different about it. I just have read that there was a significant difference in how the films concluded. Right. Was there not a lot more of the motorcycle race at the start? 
Maybe I think like yeah, I think like six minutes or something. Right. I mean, that's the thing about that film is just and and this movie too. Talking about in this case, he's shooting on reversal stock. Is just they're very like modern films in terms of like uh, the mise en scène, but it's filtered through this the film that he's using. It does give it this very like I don't want to say nostalgic, but sort of refreshing presentation that yeah. does feel very singular, particularly Buffalo 66, just in shooting on that stock with all of that, everything being so drained and muted um, and pale. It does, in my mind, it does look like there's no other, at least American film that I've ever seen that looks anything like it. Yeah, no, reading about that, I didn't realise that that was such a kind of rarefied thing, that it was actually such really difficult to, to get through that whole process, and there wasn't even proper like processing plants or anything that could do it, so it was quite an achievement. I think I've read that Gallo said that it wasn't necessarily trying to make it look vintage or anything, but he always tried to make the actual locations in that uh, very modern, but um, I think what I like about it is it does have that kind of vintage look, but kind of looks like a Polaroid or something. But um... well, it's also just because of the of Buffalo. Even though it's it's very overtly stylized, it still somehow it captures the essence of those sort of post-industrial environments. Like it heightens the the realism of it, but it seems to communicates the atmosphere better than if you weren't going to shoot it like that. I know that he. According to what I read, he sh- he shot the film on reversal because that's how all the NFL films were shot right, in the 60s okay, and yeah. 70s. And then he had a foot fetish book by uh, Elmer Batters, who's this fetish photographer, really pioneered the genre of fetish photography as the two primary inspirations for the visual design of the movie. But yeah, I mean, I when I was reading about the shooting on reversal, I was... I knew that it was cheaper to shoot on than on color negative because right, okay. you don't have to process a print from the negative because it's shot on like a transparent base. But what I didn't realize was how, because the stock is so slow, you have to pound everything with as much light as you possibly can. So right, when I was okay. reading that they're shooting daytime exteriors and they have two Ks, like two feet from the faces of the actors, I was, that's shocking to me. I, right. you know, that's a lot of light. And then also just uh, reading about how they shoot the club scene at the end with the sort of bullet time mm. and how sort of like, I, when I watch the film, I think like, oh, this has got to be such like a sophisticated process. And then reading that it was just, they had the actors pose still as long as they could and they just shot at like 150 frames per second and moved right. as fast as they could around them. That's such a lo-fi yeah. sort of approach to doing something like that. And it's like that kind of ingenuity, even reading that the uh, when they're in the photo booth, they just put two pieces of gaffer tape on the map box to create that, oh, right. that look. Like that kind of guerrilla style, like it's almost like what film students would have to try to do to compensate for not having the money for these bigger things. But it's sort of like, it's inspiring just because I, there aren't very many movies that, at least we see on this sort of scale that get made that way anymore. 
So in that way, it's also just as a, in a technical way, it's sort of like its own achievement. One thing I was curious, cause some people do have, um, one thing I find interesting with all this, the impressionistic sequences and, and then like these very like static images, um, is like how contradictory, like the aesthetic of the movie is at times. It's trying to reveal the artifice to the audience. And then like, it's trying to like remove all of that artifice. And then you also have some of those sequences where the camera is like very handheld and free. That's like associated with like, you know, the, the realism of Cassavetes or whatever. Like, it's really like a, confluence of all these different kinds of aesthetics i think it's similar it's similar to like breathless has that kind of it's obviously known for jump cuts but then you've got scenes like the scene in the hotel room which features a lot of long takes and Godard is always playing with that running between pure naturalism and then the artifice of the the tech side of it as well so um I think that's what I like about the film as well, is like so many things going mm-hmm. on. It may have been a different movie. I mean, um, for me, like, I, I love that. I love both. I love the, the kind of realism and then I love stuff that's very artificial. So for me, it's not a problem. What do you think? Do you like the, the prison mosaic? I do. I mean, that's maybe the one technique that's kind of seems a little dated. Every time I see that, sequence maybe i just haven't seen movies where but i'm always a little shocked that that kind of imagery didn't explode after this movie came out mosaics that's not a that's not a technique he invented that's in lots of movies but there's something very uh kind of crude about the way he arranges it Mm. i just i look at that and i think like apart from sort of emphasizing like the environment of this prison it's such a economical way to express an experience like there are so many other movies i feel that would have to shoot like a three to five minute sequence summing up that prison experience but here you just have this sort of single collage and then i'm always struck by like the fact that he allows the video images to loop over and over again which is i just see that as he's just He's conveying the repetition of prison life in that way. Sure. But it's, all, it's just interesting because when I think of other movies that use mosaics, the one thing that's different about this is like mosaics are usually built. There's an initial image and then everything is built around that image. Here, like he's on the park bench, but then once enough images come together, like he eliminates the, par- the park bench image. Like he covers it with all kinds of stuff. Where so that image is no longer like at the center of the frame anymore, which is I I don't know that that's a big deal, but that's just something that I feel is a little bit unusual when people actually do use that kind of technique. It's usually that the the center of the frame and then images are built around that. He just he compounds things over top of it wherever he can stuff stuff in. What did you think about his red boots? Um, for me like it's obviously quite uh, an image that's quite rich in cinematic history but I I don't know if it's necessarily anything that really relates to the plot but um, it's maybe just like a nod, a subtle nod that's not really that essential but um, it could be something to do with like 
the ruby slippers from Wizard of Oz, you know, mm. that kind of trying I never to find thought that about hole. that, yeah. Or like in the red shoes, the kind of shoes represent kind of fate or something that's kind of has its own kind of mag- magical powers. I don't know, maybe it doesn't mean anything, maybe he just picked them because it looks cool with the, his grey outfit. Well, yeah, I mean, he was a fashion model. It could yeah, have been, yeah. you know. But I, I, uh, to me, when I see him wearing them, they, they almost look like they're not his shoes. Like he shouldn't, like his character is somebody who tries so hard almost not to draw attention to himself that it seems like the color red would be the exact opposite color he would wear because red immediately attracts attention. Mm. It almost feels like, again, it's like almost that sort of, man-child thing where he he was maybe like trying to make a statement with those shoes and then he went into prison all he has is what is on his on his body basically yeah i wondered what do you think of the mickey wark scene yeah i like it do you like his performance yeah yeah that's the only scene in the movie where it just feels so uh it feels out of place because it feels so arbitrary we have to have this sequence so that you understand like why this happened there's just something about mickey rourke's performance that just feels very cliched to me he's just like he's playing the bookie archetype Mm. the narrative of the film really i don't think is that audacious like the narrative is fairly conventional it's how he like i said contextualizes it that's the one conventional moment of the narrative where it feels like it just it just is what it is. It is conventional. And there's something about the like the the set design of that room that just looks very artificial to me. Like it, yeah. you know, it looks like they have set walls up in a studio and they're just shooting this and I don't know. It just always has felt very uh sort of out of place to me. Yeah. Do you think it would have been better if it wasn't Mickey? If it's just uh, when I think about the movie, it's set in Buffalo and I think one of the things I love about the film is how it portrays the working class. Like to me, that seems also unique because when you think of working class films, that's usually approached from neorealism. And, and so those films are always like, it's like the everyday social problems that the family encounters that they have to overcome. And it's like this movie instead, like it structures it kind of rejects the everyday and it depicts the nasty fantasies, I think of the working class or something like it, it portrays in these sort of depressed parts of America, like the sort of self deprecating the, and the embittered attitudes that you can find in these kinds of environments. And it's sort of like a fantasy that provides an outlet for those feelings. It's almost like the Scott Woods subplot is like the equivalent of the concept of like the man It's a representation of something that has inflicted suffering upon you that is out of your control, but you're seeking vengeance for it anyway. And for some reason, Mickey Rourke just, he seems like too much of a, like a movie star for me to believably see him as being like a bookie in Buffalo, New York. I don't know. (laughs) Now I do I love like when Rosanna Arquette shows up in the restaurant. I think that's yeah, a great, great sequence. You were mentioning that's something I could totally identify with. I have periods in my life have been a mission to avoid people that I've 
known from my past entirely, not because I'm embarrassed. It's just, I don't want to talk to you because <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't want to have to have that awkward dialogue with them, you know, like that small talk sort of thing. Uh, what do you think about like bathrooms as a kind of theme? It seems like um, he's constantly in search of a bathroom. <laughs> I think it's kind of that kind of isolation that that represents. I read that when he originally was decided to pitch the film, he said it was he was just going to make a movie about a guy trying to find a bathroom oh, to really? pee in. Right. Like he went, okay. he was in Cannes or something promoting Arizona dream that he's acting in. He like made up this idea for a movie and he was just going around pitching it. Like a guy is looking for somewhere to pee and that's right. the whole film. And then like <laughs> he eventually like constructed a narrative out of it. But I, whenever I see that, I always kind of think like, what does that say about almost the economic situation of this environment to where like, I, I, I'm assuming it's like a Sunday when he gets out, but then I'm not sure because all the Buffalo Bills games she's watching, I believe, are taped, right? All right. I thought the first one, I thought there's maybe two. Oh, okay. Ones, and then uh, a tape. So it's probably a Sunday. Right. But it's also like there's nowhere in this city that he can find open to go to the bathroom in apart from this one cafe that refuses him and then this dance club. Mm. And it also kind of, I guess, it would be really easy to just urinate outside like and i guess that kind of speaks to you know his innocence he doesn't have sort of that instinct to just find somewhere to go i think he tries to behind that car or something at one point yeah. and a lady comes but like he's he's so incompetent he can't even go to the bathroom mm. the other thing that i think about that's kind of different than ozu is that i think this film is very it's very dependent upon like lateral movement. Ozu doesn't really move the camera at all in his films. And when he, when, and he only does it like, I believe when characters are moving and he, from what I read, he'll, he purposely would like move just as fast as them to minimize the sense of movement as much as he possibly could. But like this movie to me, like there's so much, so many lateral pans following one character from one side of the street to the other. Yeah, no, there's a lot of that. I think there's a fair number of shots that are just kind of locked off camera, particularly at the start, Billy, just kind of wandering through New York, which kind of made, made me think of um, Laventura or something like that, mm. uh, just following these kind of aimless characters. And I really love the, there's the, his prep in the bowling alley where like there's all the successions of images where it's like the bowling shoes, the fingers and the bowling ball. Yeah, I guess I get if you look at a kind of sex scene in a, a regular movie, that's kind of the point. The the point of the film that, that sex scene is maybe to to give you okay, these characters are now together, they're in love or whatever. But I think that's quite cool that the scene works in the same way maybe because that's the point that we are that, that at that point in the film the switches happen where Billy's kind of becoming a bit nicer and which is at the point that she's definitely got more control over him. And then, but it's like that same thing without sex, maybe. In the bowling alley? Yeah, yeah. I think he's still a huge dick in the bowling right, okay. alley. Mm. He like kicks her out of her, his seat or whatever. And uh, 
Yeah, well, I think after that, the point where they leave the house, though, that he, he doesn't have any need for her anymore, but he's oh, still yeah, hanging out true. with her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you like Kevin Corrigan as Goon? Yeah, I do like him quite a bit. Because, you know, he does, he's, like, very uncomfortable with his performance. Like, he's uncredited right. in the film and everything. And He wasn't sure if he wanted to take the part. He agreed with it, and then Gal wrote it for him or something, and then he said he wasn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. I love their exchanges. The oh yeah, I, I sent you a box of raisins. <laughs> a one box of raisins. That's you know how many raisins are in a little box. I mean, I don't, it's just funny. So you mentioned uh, at the start that this was like your favorite film for a long time. Is is it still one of your favorite films? Or I would maybe put it in like my top fifty. Do you have a top fifty? Do you have that like? compiled yeah i'm kind of geeky like that yeah i mean yeah it's hard to rank them within that but i can kind of see if if, if a film that I, if i really love a film then it's it was probably in there and do you still watch this film frequently or is it um yeah yeah i picked up the blu-ray last year and it was good to see it again does that have the the commentary track or um I didn't know there ever was a commentary track. Uh, apparently on like the Japanese uh, DVD release, there is a commentary track with Gallo that when whoever distributed the DVD, they like in, in the United States, they refused to include it because really? okay. they would All get right. sued for libel or something. Like All right. That. I didn't know that. I've got a couple of the Japanese DVDs. I know there's a, he did a commentary on Brown Bunny, mm. which I have. And one of the Japanese DVDs has, a, has an interview. But um, I'll look into that. So out of five Jive Turkeys, how many will you be giving Buffalo 66? It'll have to be five. And I will give it five as well. So that's our show for this week. If you'd like to share your thoughts on The Fool Killer or send the show general feedback, you can do so by sending your emails to filmjive at gmail.com. And be sure to stay in touch with us by following Film Jive on Google+, Stitcher Radio, and subscribing to our iTunes channel. Thank you for listening, and keep on jiving. Me down. She puts the sweetness in.